I know what you're wondering. What the heck does the bouncer have to do with Another World? Uh, both of these are games that I feel fit into the same general category of being games that are very innovative and help to start concepts or ideas or genres in some cases, but aren't really all that remarkable in and of themselves. Um, this game came across my attention in October of 1992 from uh, issue 41 of Nintendo Power. I was one of those lucky few, or at least lucky around, lucky few where I was, who actually had a Nintendo Power subscription thanks to Lormom, who always encouraged my video gaming uh, hobby as long as it was within moderation, and many, many props and gratitude to her for that. And I remember reading the crap out of that issue, because it was the Super Mario Kart issue, I remember this, and then I was like, there's this other game called Out of This World, and I'm like, well, that looks kind of interesting, and it reminded me of a PC game I was rather enjoying at the time called Prince of Persia. That concept where you take someone and, and do a, a, a animation set based on someone doing live-action stuff is called rotoscoping, but you're not interested in that. What you're interested in is something else. Or at least, I hope you're interested in this. I'm interested in this, and I hope you're interested in this too. And that would be the unique type of game that this was. I don't think there's actually an official genre for this, for what I'm about to tell you. The official genre for this game is cinematic uh, action platformer. But that's... That, I've seen the list of games that are under that list, and it, you know, there's a lot on that list that I really don't agree with, at least as far as what I'm referring to. There's a certain type of game that has a deliberate pacing to it that I've always found really enjoyable. I can name three examples right off the top of my head. The aforementioned Prince of Persia, this game, and another SNES game that I actually really enjoyed, Blackthorn. All three of these games have this deliberate, specific pacing to them that's hard to describe unless you've actually played it and you know exactly what I'm talking about, in which case, never mind me, but I'm going to try and describe this for anybody who doesn't. It's not slow, but it's not fast either. It's, it's just this kind of very deliberate method of play style where each and every beat that you're doing happens to fall within this pattern. And you get into this rhythm of it. You know, this rhythm of movement, this rhythm of jumping, this rhythm of combat, this rhythm of pl platforming, this rhythm of puzzle solving. And I can't actually call it slow, because there's plenty of sections in all three of the games I just mentioned where it is the opposite of slow, which, for those of you not aware, is actually called fast. I'm sorry, I just woke up. I just finished this game. This morning, I'm, I'm trying to, to really push through this as best as I can. Forgive me. <laughs> There's a very deliberateness to the pacing, and I've always enjoyed that style of gameplay where it's just, all right, and then I gotta do this, and then I gotta do this, and then I gotta do this. And of course, it's not truly turn-based. I can't actually pause. I have to keep the rhythm myself. If anything, it reminds me of a slightly different take on, uh, oh, what's that called? A Crypt of the Necrodancer which also has a similar general vibe to it, although, of course, that's a completely different category. But it feels the same way as a lot of these games do to me. I also want to mention that this game also started another trend, and this is one I don't like. I'm just going to be as open and honest and blunt about that as I can. And that is the 
again, I don't really have a term for this, and, and I've looked this up too, and I've tried to find if there's some kind of official terminology to describe what this is, and I have found nothing. But there's this other thing where you try to have minimalistic UI, sometimes no UI, and no real dialogue or cutscenes per se, other than a few key ones, and pretty much try to tell a story without dialogue, purely through visuals. There's plenty of games that do this, uh, to varying degrees of ex success. Uh, probably the most obvious recent example of this would be Hyperlight Drifter, which is a game I imagine several of you either have or heard of, or actually played yourself. And here's the thing. I don't like that type of game, just in general. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, the lore runner doesn't like a game that, that doesn't have a lot of lore, but I, I don't mean it's necessarily bad. This is definitely a coffee situation for me. But that being said, I have actually played Hyperlight Drifter very recently prior to playing this game. I played it on stream uh, for one of my random Sunday events, stream events, and I really didn't find myself getting into it. I mean, the gameplay was okay, but the story just kind of kept pulling me out of it to the point where I was immensely disinterested and uninvested in what was going on. And... I knew that I was going to be looking at this game in the future, and I, I just kind of held that in the back of my mind until I played this game, because I wanted to compare the two as side-by-side side as possible. And I think I have a theory on the difference between the two. And it's not nostalgia, and it's not the era, it's the presentation of story. Hyperlight Drifter and several other games, I'm not going to name specifics, but that's one most people probably know. You, you probably know what I'm talking about with the minimalistic UI, visual storytelling, no no text, no kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about with that, I'm sure. It gives you a few snippets at the beginning which are devoid of real context, and then it just kind of tosses you into it, and you're just kind of supposed to make it up as you go. It got to the point where people have gotten interpretive as to trying to figure out exactly who and what is. In fact, some people I saw in a few threads have actually gone to data mining files about certain characters to try and just get names for certain entities so they could actually use proper names for these things. By contrast, another world, which, by the way, if I ever slip up and call it out of this world, I'll talk about that in a second, but forgive me. Another world starts off with a text crawl, which is actually set in the middle of the game, after escaping from the prison. And that helps to establish plenty of things. And it's like, oh, okay, here, here's what's going on and how it's going on. And then there's actually an intro cutscene as well. Now, Hyperlight Drifter and other games... uh El Shaddai is actually a decent example of this as well, although not super decent. But anyways, other games do this kind of thing as well. But the difference here is this cutscene begins deliberately grounded in something we automatically understand. And includes very understandable things like references to a Ferrari, a professor, and an experiment. With those three things, bam, 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 we automatically understand the base principle of what's going on. This is a well-off scientist individual who's performing some kind of experiment, and then, and now he's in another world. We get it. We're with it. We're on board. We know where we're going. Now what? Okay? <laughs> now we have to figure out what the story's going from this point. And there's a lot of stuff in the background and stuff during the course of the events of the game that helps to give more information than some other games do. I've actually talked about this extensively during my Dark Souls 2 stream, and my Dark Souls 3 stream for that matter. I believe that there, it's okay... Let me, let me phrase my words very particularly here. 
Obviously, it's okay to do a minimalistic storytelling style. Duh. I mean, I don't have to say that. That's what I was about to say, and that's why I had to correct myself. But generally, I don't care for a minimalistic storytelling style, but I do believe that it's possible to have that and still be something that I will enjoy personally, depending on how much information is being presented visually. There needs to be enough there, basically. Let me explain this through a metaphor, which is something I like to do. You're an artist, drawer, painter, finger paint, whatever, and you want to draw a brick building, okay? Because <laughs> I love my bricks, right? Um, you want to draw a brick building. Well, basically, you have two options here, uh, two general style options. One is to, let's, let's assume pencil, because that's easier to understand for this analogy. So you're, you draw in each individual brick, and you try and draw a few bricks a little different from the others because, you know, that that's how that works. And some of the bricks are a little offset and this one's a little chipped, you know. And you spend absolutely forever drawing every single brick in that building. Uh, that's more traditionalist, more uh, in inclusive kind of a art style. But there's also a minimalist style of art style. Now, it's, the thing is, the minimalist style, and I bet most of you already know where I'm going with this, is to draw some of the bricks in specific and key locations so that the person viewing it says brick building because they're not seeing there's only like five bricks on this building or whatever they're seeing a building that has bricks in it and their mind kind of fills in the rest of the gaps that's the whole point of minimalist storytelling as well as minimalist art style okay with me now the key point is how many bricks you actually put on there to use direct examples i feel dark souls 2 in particular has too few bricks there's too little information there, and it becomes just a little bit too speculative, too much of a blank sheet of paper at that point. You know, there's like three bricks over here, and that doesn't really infer something. Uh, by contrast, Dark Souls 1 has significantly more bricks in it, so it's like, aha, you know, something like that. To bring this back to the relevant games, it is my opinion that Hyperlight Drifter just has too few bricks. There's some cool stuff here and there, and some interesting visual stuff, but for the most part, I'm looking at this like, huh? <laughs> what? And there were points in the story where I just didn't have any impressions at all because I just couldn't make anything out of what I was looking at. By contrast, there was really no point throughout the course of Another World where I felt myself going, what the hell's going on? Or basically thinking nothing. At each point, at each set piece throughout the course of the game, I was like, aha, now they're here. And now they're dealing with this kind of situation. And now there's some kind of slave revolt or something going on, you know. And what's funny, I mentioned, I want to talk about that slave revolt thing in specific. I mentioned that, but re-going through it, I, there's no actual information that seems to indicate that, except for one scene. It's the scene where they're going through, uh, it would be, I guess, after the first cave section, I believe. Hang on, let me check here. Uh, so, yep, yep, after, after the first cave section with the water section, uh, there's this scene where the guards are fighting a bunch of the, the black beasts that have escaped. And that's the only scene that gave me this impression, but based on the presentation of the other events and the other set pieces, that brick, to me, means there's some kind of revolt going on at this point in history. But there's nothing really indicating that, and I could be completely wrong about that for all I know. Anyways, so I just wanted to address that point in particular. That being said, I can't in good conscience call this a really great game. 
It is certainly innovative. It did many things that really helped to jumpstart certain aspects of the industry, like I mentioned, the, the aforementioned uh, minimalist storytelling style and heavy emphasis on visual storytelling are two obvious examples of that. A somewhat less obvious example is the, I don't know how to properly put this, graphics engine. Uh, this, I'm going to fail at explaining this properly, so forgive me. Basically, rather than have true sprites, like most games of the time of this era did, or having uh, fully rendered um, uh, pre-existing meshes or whatever, the game used... Sp the game is programmed with specific vector outlines, okay? So, like, when they're programming the game, basically picture that there's a line here, and a line here, and a line here, with with a particular color attached to it. And that's in the code. So when the game is actually then rendered, the game looks at that line, fills in the space to create what is effectively a polygon, but isn't literally one, because it's actually a 2D image being projected on a 3D landscape. I, I know I'm explaining this terribly, so forgive me, but it was very innovative for the time. Many other games uh, would later try to use something similar. Uh, like like the later Star Fox games, for example. And this would lead to a whole new revolution with regards to using polygons uh, in PC games specifically. This game actually originally came out on the Amiga, for anybody curious. <laughs> oh, I suppose I should answer. I did look at the PC version of this game, but I decided just for the sake of uh, playing the version that I knew to go ahead and play the SNES version. So that's the one I did specifically for this game. I suppose this is a good time to talk about the names, because I said I'd mention that. So... This game actually has three separate names, depending on which region you're in. The original title for this game is Another World, which is why I've decided to put that up there in the title, because that was the intended title. However, there was actually a TV show at the time called Another World, and there were obviously concerns about that, so when this game was pushed out into the United States market, they called it Out of This World, which is how it came to be known to me. Uh, thing is, while they were porting this game over into Japan... Another show came out called Out of This World. So then they had to call it something else entirely, in which, uh, what'd they call it? The, uh, I wrote it down somewhere. Out of This World, Another World, and, uh, Outer. That was it. Outer World in Japan. So, if, in case you're wondering what the hell game I'm talking about, I'm talking about Another World, Out of This World, or Outer World, depending on which region you happen to be in. This game actually took a couple years to make, which is no surprise given it. But what's funny is most of that work was done in the engine stuff I talked about earlier and some of the early set uh, scenario design. I've actually talked about this a little bit in the past. Uh, this came up with regards to Overwatch. Don't worry, I'm going to tie Overwatch and Another World together seamlessly. Watch me here. Because there's really two generalized styles of writing when it comes to storytelling. There's preloaded and there's postloaded, okay? Uh, you know, whether you want to have, whether you sit down and you design a world and write out the story and figure out everything that's going, and then once you have the skeleton and the, the grasp and all that stuff, then you actually sit down and start writing it. That's, that's the preloading. That, that's making sure everything's in the front end. That's front ended. Uh, back ending is, okay, I'm gonna write a scene, okay? Well, in this scene, there's this guy who's got a motorcycle. So let's let's say there's this motorcycle gang. Okay, well, now that we've got the motorcycle gang, why are they a gang? Well, let's write some backstory for this guy. Okay, this guy has this backstory connected to this company that I just mentioned in brief. Well, let's write in this company. And so it's kind of more the difference between pre-planned 
and improvisational, to use an acting uh, terminology here. So the first chunk of this game was completely written in improvisational matter, the, the back-ended thing, the Overwatch method. In other words, <clears throat> he just sat down and was like, okay, scientist, another dimension. Okay, um, tentacle thing, okay. Uh, slime creatures, okay. Beast attacks, roar. Oh, but then you're saved because there, you run into um, an alien. Oh my god, it's an alien. But then he captures you, oh no. And it kind of feels that way, especially knowing that going through this. Especially since you can clearly delineate the game into two halves. Even though this is actually a really short game uh, when you get down to it. Because let's look at the narrative flow of the first section. You land in the new planet and you're fighting the, the random creatures and the beast. The first beast you encounter, right? So, that's all your threat, the, the, the terrain, the environment. Then you encounter the guard, and your next threat is the prison. That's the next thing you have to deal with, is the actual aliens and whatever oppressive regime they've got going on. Next thing after that is the cave section, also known as the section I got really lost on most back when I was playing this on the SNES and needed to refer to my Nintendo Power to figure out what the hell I was doing next. Holy crap, the cave section is so easy to screw up. Anyways, um, you have to do things in a pretty specific order. I'll talk about that in a minute, too. Uh, so you go to the cave section, you're fighting the random beasts, again, the fauna of the area, and uh, just the terrain of the water and the caves themselves, platforming. The very next section after that is the ruins, where you go back, where you start segueing back into fighting guards. That's the delineating point, by the way, because from that point on, the narrative is far more linear and feels far more plotted out. Now, you might be like, what are you talking about? Well, let me explain. Uh, the gentleman, the main gentleman, whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce, uh, who made this game, was improvisationaling his way through the game until he was really far into it, like a year and a half, 17 months, actually, into developing this game. And then he was like, okay, <laughs> I need to start actually doing storyboards and figure out where I want the rest of the game to go. And so then he sat down and storyboarded the rest of the game. And if you pay attention, you, you can really tell the specific screen. I, I could probably point it out to you if I was playing the game in front of you. This is the screen where I think he started storyboarding. Because all of a sudden, everything follows a, a, an actual narrative flow and never le leaves this specific thematic antagonist, which is the evil empire of whatever organization this is. Which leads to, uh, you've got the city, and then you've got the guards, and you've got the arena, and then you've got the final guard section, and then the escape. You know, all of that is just much more cohesive with itself than the previous sections were. Not to dismiss the previous sections, but the previous sections followed a certain cadence, whereas the final sections follow more of a direct line. I think that's the way I put it. You know, the first sections are, and then the last sections are. Okay, now that I've talked about that way too long. <laughs> I should mention, the guy who made uh, this game, you might be like, who is this guy? What's this team? Um, have you ever heard of Heart of Darkness? It's a PS1 game, I believe. I haven't actually played it, uh, so I don't know much about that one. But I do know From Dust, a much more recent game, that I actually did a full exploration on a couple of years ago, I think, at this point. And uh, those are both by the same guy and the same general team. And I could see that, at least in From Dust case. Certainly the same kind of minimalistic, okay, here's here's a thing, I want to do a concept kind of a video game. You know, cool stuff, but... Hmm. <sighs> um, so, uh, I mentioned that, I mentioned that. I'm looking at my notes now here. 
Uh, I want to talk about the implied art style. I already mentioned minimalist art style. There's a lot of that in this game, obviously, because, like, let me give you an example, just perfect example. There's a scene right at the beginning where there's this black shape on your thing, and then two eyes appear, and then four teeth appear. And that's it. That's all you see. Two eyes, four teeth, black shape. That is pretty much the definition of minimalistic art style, or implied art in this particular case. There's a lot of that in this game. And what I find funny is... I, I, again, think they did a good job of this, because without even needing to, to think about it, I could point to just about everything in this game and say, oh, that's a such-and-such. Such. I, again, relate this game to Star Fox, because while playing through Star Fox, I would look at something and say, oh, that's a fighter, that's a carrier, that's some kind of missile torpedo thing, that's some kind of dragonfly. It was just, it was just so obvious to me. And yet, when I take myself out of it for a moment and look at what I'm looking at, it's like, okay, that's a box with two hexagons attached to it. You know, that's it. That's all it is. I was just sort of naturally assuming what it was based on the visual style, and this is also important, based on what it was doing. The actions taken give a lot of uh, context to a lot of the otherwise minimalistic things in this game. And I think context is really important, too, for understanding what the hell is going on. But moving right along. <clears throat> I mentioned the death thing and the getting lost thing. Anyone play any of those old Sierra games? I used to play a lot of those. Uh, I, I can't seem to name any off the top of my head, and I didn't write any down. Million ways to die, one way to live. That's, that's the old concept. And that is this game in a nutshell. You have to do everything very particularly in a very specific way, or you die. And you die pretty horribly and very easily in this game. The, the tone of this game is set from the first playable screen when you die when you when you land into the water after dimensional hopping because if you don't hold up you die <laughs> because the tentacle grabs you and then you got onto the land and then if you don't get out quickly enough you die because the tentacle comes out and grabs you there are before you get the blaster charged you have what is it like four i think exact shots and that is exactly enough to do all of the specific actions you need to do to get to the point where you can charge the blaster don't do that you die fall too far you die get eaten by a creature you die get run over you die hit the steam you die i mean it's kind of crazy and this is one of the reasons why i say this game for all its innovation and for all its relatively good ideas is not a game i can quite call a really good game uh, because it is immeasurably unforgiving, and like many of the old adventure games, sometimes the method by which you have to progress is not what you'd call super obvious. Um, the, the Getting lost in the cave section, that's pretty well designed. I can't really hold that against the game. However, there's a couple specific sections. Uh, for example, the entire tank arena section. There's like nothing to indicate what you're supposed to hit in the tank arena or what you're trying to do. You're just, you're, you're in a tank, you're in the arena, do the right thing or you die, right? Huh? What am I supposed to do? Uh, of course, you're supposed to hit the eject pods, but how do you do that? Which buttons do you hit, right? Another point, uh, this one always got me. This is a very minor point. There's a section where you could, you're going across, basically jumping across what used to be a bridge and you go forward and I remember being stuck there for so long, because what you're actually supposed to do is to fall down to another level down below, and then, in an otherwise unassuming area, shoot out the wall in order to be able to progress. There's a lot of sections, like, well, I shouldn't say there's a lot, this is actually a relatively short game, but there are several sections where I found myself going, ugh, 
and I freely admit I did have to use a walkthrough a couple of times in this particular playthrough of this game. Uh, in fact, I just mentioned two of the instances where I had to off the top of my head. Uh, thankfully, I remembered some of the stuff when I used to play this game on the SNES, but, you know, this is probably a good time to mention that I never actually beat this game back in the day on the SNES. Uh, there was a time when I went back and started replaying a lot of NES and SNES games to finally beat them. This was like uh, 2010 or so, something along that time. And uh, I, I did actually manage to beat the game then, but I never actually beat this game when I was, you know, in... in uh, I guess that wouldn't be high school. Whatever year that was when this game came out. 92, I guess. <laughs> Anyways. So I talked about the, the storytelling style. Um, I talked about the arena. I talked about the pace. I don't actually have much else to talk about. There's not much to discuss about the story. All I can really give you is my interpretation of what I'm seeing because of the nature of the minimalistic visual storytelling thing that I've talked about so much. So, um, my interpretations... So the scientist uh, thing, you know, it explains he's a scientist. I already talked about that. We get that. He's gone into another dimension. Okay, we get that. Then he ends up in the prison. He's hanging by the thing where you have to swing the cage left and right. One of the things they do that I think was very smart, and this helps set the tone for the entire game, in my opinion, is in the background there's a whole bunch of the race, uh, Buddy's race, that are all mining. And the first moment I see race in the background mining plus race in the guard, two things jump to my mind immediately. First of all, the fact that it's the same race means this is some kind of oppressive regime which is forcing people to do this. And second of all, the aforementioned slavery. Now, I assume this is slavery. This could be a form of punishment or a penal colony or whatever. There's plenty of ways this could go. But my mind immediately jumps to decrepit organization, whether it's a kingdom or a bandit fiefdom or, you know, whatever of the dying empire, and slavery, reliance on slave trade. In fact, I got a lot of Roman Empire, I guess third Roman Empire, or is it fourth? God, I get them all con so confused. I'm sorry. One of the Roman Empire's slavery dependence uh, vibes from a lot of this game. The, the the empire that is already decadent and already descending and, and in, the, in the middle of a collapse kind of a vibe. And I get all that. And all of that is helped to establish by this one scene, which, like I said, establishes the tone for the entire game. Then you go through the prison area, which is not in a good shape, and uh, most of the guards there are shoot-on-sight kind of a situation, which also kind of helps to imply the tone. And then we have the section where you get to the to the ruins. The ruins is the interesting part to me, because you go from the mines to the caves to the ruins, to the city. That's the progression. And the fact that there, geographically speaking, there is ruins, there are ruins, immediately adjacent to an actual well-maintained city, says a lot about what the hell's going on with this particular organization. Again, whether it's a bandit kingdom, or an actual kingdom, or a fiefdom, or an empire, or whatever the hell it is. The fact that they are only maintaining certain sections of their own infrastructure, and allowing the rest of it to decay and crumble, it says a lot. Um, I, what it says exactly is going to depend on interpretation. Again, I've already kind of given mine with the whole decadent, you know, falling, crumbling empire thing. But it can say a lot. Uh, the actual city, then, which you get to, has a lot of things that were absent in previous areas. The thing that always jumped out to me, and it did this time as well, is the stained glass windows in the background that help to show, you know, some kind of presentation of art. Uh, you know, the idea of basically upper class, for lack of a better way to put it. The 
harem section is another excellent example of this, where it's like, oh, hey, here's all these wonderfully nude women who are all bathing in this area. And at first glance, that might seem innocent, but the presence of the guards right there, ready and willing to shoot anyone, kind of makes me think that that's more of a property of the emperor kind of a thing, rather than this is a bathhouse for women kind of a thing. Um, the arena, I mentioned the arena er, uh, earlier. So we see tons of people in the background, they're like, yeah, woo, yeah. And you're in a tank. And it's worth noting, it's not like you bust into this place. The tank is well positioned to just go into the arena. So the tank is designed to go into this arena. What kind of arena do these people have where people are running around and beasts are running around and they have tanks involved? You know, again, the, the bread and circus is kind of Roman thing is, is what immediately came to my mind. Um, and then get to the end. I, again, I, like I said, I don't have a lot to say here. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier the, set, the scene with the beasts getting free. It's possible that's just another sign of how uh, decadent or decrepit they've become, how lack of control they have over their own forces kind of a thing. Or it could be the revolution thing that I hinted at. I have no idea. Um, but then they get out and they, they, they flee, and then there's the final section where you have to literally crawl over and you have a pretty small window, I think you have like two spare seconds, something like that, to be able to get all the way over to the right before he kills you if, if you're not already in position to kill him. And then the ending. Now, I know that this story has sort of since been continued, a Heart of the Alien or something like that is the continuation, which confirms that Lester, the main character, did actually survive these events. But at the time, it was left so vague and so up in the air, just like most of the rest of the storytelling, that there's plenty of different interpretations that can be had here. And I've heard of several. Uh, the most common one, and the one that literally leaped to my mind immediately, was the fact that he died. That in his final act of, of you, know, you know, he was beaten to a pulp, and it's like, hang on, just need to get to the thing, and kills the guard, and then Buddy takes him up and carries him away on the dragon. The idea being that he died somewhere in, in the process of that to his wounds, thanks to the fact that he didn't get medical help. And the end, you know, that's that's the end of his story. You, you ended up in another world and helped to start off a slave revolution against a decadent empire, and then you died. Very Flash Gordon, if you think about it in a weird way, with a little less camp. And that's it. That's the end of the game. Like I said, I don't have much to say. Uh, I do hope you have nevertheless enjoyed... I actually really enjoy going through this game. I, I wish I had more to talk about. I do apologize, but I hope you enjoyed my rumination on this, and I will see you guys next time.